All right, what do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? Some of you were trying to cram and cheat, but it's a little late for that, isn't it? It's Matthew 5 through 7. It's Matthew 5 through 7. Okay. What else do you know about it? Sorry? Ah. Okay. Basis for the original eight recovery principles that uh, AA stepped off of. Okay. All right. Well, number one is God's word. Number two is some of the highest ethical thinking that you're and uh, thinking that you're likely to come across. Yeah, this is a true statement. Did I see somebody else? Is that when after he preached for a long time? Getting hungry. No, you're thinking about the uh, the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. Okay. But very similar. Uh, this one's more about the content. That was more about the miracle. Bill? To me, it's always been the almost initial presentation of the new covenant. Yep. You know, it's interesting that Matthew, um, written primarily to the Jews... Okay, you find Jesus introduced as king, being born king, and at the end he's the resurrected king. And, uh, you know, they were looking for a king, they were looking for a Messiah, and so he presented himself to them as king, and they rejected that. But right out of the gate, you know, there's not much transpires here before Matthew goes right into this Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's literally right out of the gate. And, and Jesus kicks this off. If you're looking in your scripture, uh, if you look back to uh, verse 17 of chapter 4, leading into this. Well, let's back up. Let's just, let's just make a blow through these first three or four chapters. you got the genealogy of Christ, which introduces Him as the, the one appointed by God, uh, Son of David. Uh, you've got the birth. You've got the visit of the wise men acknowledging his, his royalty, his kingship, the flight into Egypt, then Herod killing children, the return to Nazareth, then John the Baptist is preparing the way, then chapter 4 gets in and the baptism of Jesus. Then you get into chapter 4 and you've got the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Okay, That brings us right up to he comes out of that temptation in the wilderness and what does he say? The first thing, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls his disciples, he gathers a crowd, and moves right into this sermon. And you're exactly right. This is one of the, the greatest uh, presentations of ethical living that you're going to find anywhere. And it also is the announcing and description of the character of kingdom life. Okay? Now, some people have, have kind of abused it. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. And one of the reasons I ask you these questions is because most of us haven't spent much time in it. We've heard sermons or we may have studied the Beatitudes, those first, what, eight or ten verses, and that's about it. We don't get into a lot of the other things. You know, the, you have a, a general description coming in there in those first 10 verses or so with the Beatitudes 
And then he unpacks it. He unpacks the implications of that throughout the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And what Jesus is saying is this, this is what my people look like and live like. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and this is the character of the kingdom of heaven. This is what these people look like. Now, some people have advertised it as, you know, kind of a sequel to the Mosaic Law. Uh, they, they put a legalistic bent on it, and, and that would be an incorrect and unhealthy way uh, to look at it. So let me just uh, throw some of these out there. You can chime in as you will. Um, where does it come in our lives, and what is its place in our thinking and outlook? You know, how often do you think about the Sermon on the Mount? How often do you read it, or have you read it? And this is not, you know, this is not an indictment. This is, we're just getting started here, you know, because most of us would say, you know, not much. Maybe. And you may be like, uh, you know, Dr. Drake. Uh, one of the last things I remember Dr. Drake doing, you know, he was always reading and memorizing Scripture, but he memorized the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he cited it for us one Saturday morning here when the men got together for breakfast. And uh, that's pretty impressive, you know, at what he was probably 95 at the time or 93 or something like that, and to, to memorize and recite these verses. But even then, I didn't really appreciate, you know, what, what this represents. Sermon on the Mount is just one of those uh, things that we chalk up and put in this little compartment, something Jesus did when he was here, and, uh, and not really see the, the key significance of it and what it means for us in our daily living with Christ. What is our relationship to this extraordinary sermon that is in such a prominent position in these three chapters? Matthew has positioned it intentionally in a very prominent position at the very outset of his gospel. And he's done that for a reason. So it ought to get our attention. We ought to place the same kind of prominence on it in our lives and how we read it and understand it and grow in it. For whom is the Sermon on the Mount intended? Well, I've given that away, right? Obviously, Jesus was preaching for those who followed him at that time, his disciples, of which we are part. If you're in Christ, you are part of that, and it's, it's for you. It wasn't just for those that were following them at that time. <clears throat> so, there's some conflicting uh, opinions in answering some of these questions. There are some people, um, I don't know that there's so much of this going on today, but some people view the Sermon on the Mount as sort of a social gospel. And in fact, they would say that uh, this is really the only thing that matters in the New Testament. Okay? That that's where you get churches that go out and just want to do good things, do good works, uh, you know, try to obey this, use it as some sort of ethical mandate to go out and do these things, and that that's, that's really the essence of the New Testament. We know that's incorrect, right? That's getting things backwards. We're doing this Sermon on the Mount in order to accomplish, attain, please God, gain acceptance by God, from God, or something of that nature. So this is not a healthy way to look at it. Uh, most of these, I think, are antiquated uh, at, this, at this time. Not many of them on the, on the radar. Another view is that the sermon is nothing but an elaboration or an exposition of the Mosaic Law, as I said a little earlier. This view holds that the Jewish leadership was misinterpreting the laws given to Moses. So Jesus elaborates and, exp and expounds on the law. So when Jesus came... 
What this view says is that the people who were in leadership, the Jewish leadership, were not giving correct interpretation to the law, and so Jesus felt the need to expound upon it and make it clear and all those kind of things. But that's not what he's doing. We know that there's a relationship between the law and the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not the right one. There's also a dispensational view of the Sermon on the Mount that says that it's in the future. You know, that it doesn't apply to now, but it's, it points toward the millennium when Jesus comes back, establishes earthly rule, and this is what it will look like then. Uh, so in that case, it wouldn't have anything to do with us now, right? If you, if you ascribe to that, to that uh, belief system. The Sermon on the Mount, according to Lloyd-Jones, is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called His new commandment. He told us what? I'm giving you a new commandment to do what? Love one another. You know, love one another as I have loved you. And by this love, uh, other people will know that you belong to me. And so Lloyd-Jones says, this is a, a grand, perfect elaboration of what the Lord called this new commandment. This is him unpacking this, unfolding it, and explaining it in detail. What do I mean by this new commandment? What do I mean when I say you're to love one another as I love you? And then he starts un- unfurling this in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a grand elaboration of His commandment to love one another. If we are Christ and our Lord has meant that word for us, we should love one another even as He loved us. And here we're shown how to do it. The kingdom of God is among you and within you. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian and the church. It means the reign of God, the reign of Christ, and Christ is reigning today in every true Christian. Christ reigns in the church when she acknowledges Him truly. Whenever Christ is enthroned as King, the kingdom of God has come, so that while we cannot say He's ruling over all the world at the present time, He's certainly ruling in that way in the hearts and lives of His people, or He should be, right? If we know Him, follow Him, He has... He has Um, planted himself he has placed himself in our lives and this kingdom ethic should be being evidenced in all that we do so the Sermon on the Mount is meant for all Christians well it was the the audience was probably probably. I mean he was in uh, the traditional site for this was, was around Galilee. Okay, so it, they wouldn't have all been Jews. Uh, but there would have been a substantial number of them. Okay, uh, In fact, the traditional site uh, up near Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee is just a huge, long, grassy slope that rises up. And I want to say that there's a, a, uh, there's a, a church um, at the top of that rise now, but... It's a beautiful place, but there seems to be reason to believe, given the the um, challenges of um, you know speaking to a large crowd like that, that it would have been more effective using water, you know, as a as a conduit for you know speaking across water. Sound travels better than on the on the slope. So that he may have been in a boat like we've seen with the disciples, push me out, let me address the crowd. Um, but Sermon on the Mount 
you know, why did it get called that? You know, somewhere between the water's edge and, and that rise, which I don't know. Bill, you were there. How, how far would that be? Would it, it, it wasn't a half mile, a quarter mile maybe from the top of the rise all the way down to the water's edge, but somewhere maybe in that vicinity. Could have been a moving crowd. Could have started there and moved down to the water or vice versa. Um, but at any rate, that was the location uh, where it was happening. So he wasn't in Jerusalem at this time. There would have been Jews in the crowd, but there would have been others as well. Um, why should we study the Sermon on the Mount? I'm going to give you four primary reasons. And, um, sir? Because it's in the Bible. That's always a good reason, right? Let me give you four primary reasons. First, first reason, we study it because Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. If this is His kingdom ethic... The only way we can live it is by Him residing in us because of what He's done. Um, redeeming us unto Himself, adopting us into His family. Secondly, the Sermon on the Mount uniquely shows me, shows us, the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit's working in us. When you look at this, and when you read this, I mean, you think the Ten Commandments are tough. When you start reading this, you know, that's, that's why it surprised me we had such a huge crowd tonight. Um, <laughs> we'll see how you hold up as we go through this. But the challenges are very intense. I mean, there, there's a, it, it's huge. He's, he's portraying what it, what it looks like to live a sanctified, holy life. You know? Um, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? I mean, we think we know what it means. But do we really understand what he's saying when he says that? Uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to go through life with, without that hand than it is to go into hell. Those are the kind of things that make, make up this sermon. So when you read that, these Beatitudes essentially crush and demoralize, convince us that we're utterly and totally helpless, that we can't do this. I'm incapable of doing this. So we understand that we need, we need this, this advocate. We need this mediator who's, who does this for us, who can accomplish this for us through us. Thirdly, as we seek to live and practice this sermon, the more we experience God's blessing. That's what he says. He gives us this promise all the way through it. Blessed is he. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are you. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's making this as a promise. What does it mean to be blessed? You know, is this, this you know, blessing? Well, what, what does he mean when he's talking about blessed are you? You know, the word technically means happy. Happy, content, satisfied. Satisfied are you, content are you, blessed are you when, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. So this sermon's filled with promised blessings for those who practice it. The Sermon on the Mount is where we find power for life and blessing. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I mean, I can't imagine sitting there and listening after, you know, after dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes and, and their continued, you know, loading down, loading down, loading down, you know, with the burdens of infinitesimal parts of the law keeping 
And Jesus walks in and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You don't have to be arrogant and full of yourself and, and all high and mighty like some of these teachers that you have today, you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek. Blessed are they. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Not when you're powerful. Not when you're throwing down on somebody else. But when people abuse you, reject you, ridicule you for my sake, blessed are you. It's an upside down world, isn't it? You read that and you go, this doesn't fit today's vernacular at all, does it? Go out on the street and try to sell this. Go to Wall Street and try to sell it. Go downtown Atlanta and try to sell it. That was the point, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I was just reading something that John Stott said. He said the Sermon on the Mount basically describes a Christian counterculture where we're to be totally different than the rest of the world. Big word here. culture what does culture mean we hear it all the time you hear me say it a lot what is culture the norms of a people group yeah it's it's the habits it's the values it's the, the behavior patterns it's all these things that make up this petri dish we call earth that we live in right um, you know right now our culture is a violent culture we see people taking weapons and unnecessarily taking human life and that's that's concerning to all of us um, you know I was talking with someone uh, just maybe today can't remember but uh, you know where we are as a culture and how out of the box everything seems to be and how that's changed so rapidly over the last generation okay last 40 years maybe 30 to 40 years and and they were talking about how horrible it is and I said you know it's true but there's a paradox here while it's horrible it's also a good thing and they looked at me like I was crazy and I said because we're not hiding behind masks anymore people are coming out and they're being who they are with no pretense now, why is that a good thing? You know where they stand. You know, it's not the guy sitting down the pew from you in church that, you know, is addicted to pornography and abusing his daughter and verbally abusing his wife. You know, he's out there on the Internet, on his social media, telling you that's what he's doing. And so we know where he stands. We're not deceived. You know, these people are out there and they're doing it. They're, they're not hiding behind some sort of moral oppression facade that we've put on them so that we don't really know who's who. So, for Christians, there's a, there's a clear contrast between righteous and unrighteous. There's a clear contrast between, you know, a life in Christ and a life outside of Christ. And so in that way, I'm not saying that all these bad things are good. I don't want you to hear that. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that because of the transparency that's now evident in our culture, 
that that helps us. It helps us and should help us in our fervency to pray, our desperation for God to realize what, what a wicked mess we are apart from Him, how desperately we need Him, and also encourage us toward faithfulness and boldness in proclaiming the only hope that the world's got, that anybody's got, and that is in Christ. So um, this is not so bad, but it, but it, culture is what we live in. So to go counterculture is essentially, you know, Bill, you went to Niagara Falls this summer. Who else went? This has been the summer of Niagara Falls, right? You know, Dan, Dan Wolf. Dan Wolf. You know, you got that huge falls up there. I don't, I don't know what the specifics are. I, I did some research a few years ago on Victoria Falls in Kenya. And the amount of water that goes over that thing is incredible. And the force that it's going over. All right? But imagine you down here. You all know I'm a great artist. People line up for my work everywhere. Be quiet, Bob. It looks good to me. <laughs> Counterculture means that all this water is pounding down this way, and I'm going against it. Right? Our culture is like those falls pouring down all this unrighteousness, all this stuff. Counterculture means that we're pushing back against it, that we're going in the opposite direction, not being dragged along with the current, not, you're not being pushed with the current, but going against the current. You know, when the salmon go to spawn, they swim upstream, they jump falls to go lay their eggs and to spawn. They go against the current. Counterculture is normalcy for the Christian life. But what we see in our culture today is we've seen the world evangelize the church much more than the church is evangelizing the world. Right? Anybody want to quibble with that? <laughs> we know it's true. The church has decided we need to look more like the world so, you know, that we won't scare them when they come in. Well, listen, a little secret, they're not coming. They don't even know you're here. They don't know, and they don't care. Because for them, they're in this massive current, the stream going in this direction like everybody else is. And they think they're perfectly normal. We've got something that tells us something different. God says, that's not normal. <laughs> that's doomed. That's headed for condemnation. That's in the, you've, you've said um, we are going we should be going counterculture. God is counterculture, and we are in Him. That's right. So it's, it's Him doing the work. That's our calling. That's right. That, that, that's our marching orders. Not to get along with the culture. Now, listen, I'm not saying we extricate ourselves from the culture, that we isolate ourselves and, and go over here, well, you know what? We don't like this culture. We're going to go over here and build us a little fort. And we're going to all get in here and hide from the world. That's not our calling. Our calling is to be in the culture, but to be counterculture, to be working in the opposite direction, right? So, this sermon describes what that looks like. What does it mean to be counterculture? It was the same in Jesus' day as it is in our day today, right? 
All right. As we seek to live and practice the sermon, the more we experience, the, as we seek to live and practice the sermon, the more we will experience God's blessing. The fourth thing I want you to hear uh, about why we should study the sermon is the Sermon on the Mount is the best means of evangelism. Because of what we just described here. It's the best means of evangelism. Look, if you're in a canoe going down Niagara Falls with everybody and his brother, and you look over and you see Bob going back up the falls by himself, is that going to get your attention? Sure it is. Sure it is. Lloyd-Jones says that as the church becomes distinct from the world, as the church looks different from the world, then it becomes attractional to the world. That's the opposite of the modern church theory. The churches today are trying to get as close to the world as they can. You know, we, we want to get everything out here in the culture, but, you know, we want to lean in and say we're still in the church, but everything we're doing looks more like the world. Because we, we want to attract them. We want to attract lost people. So we're, we're kind of compromising some things so that they will like us and come in. It doesn't work. If it does work, and if they come in, when do you pull the bait and switch on them? Pray to God, somebody tell me, when is the magic moment that you switch and say, Ah, we got you. You prayed to receive Christ. Now you're one of us. Now you got to act like us. Which is really like the way they were acting anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? No. John says, as we go counterculture and become distinct from the world, we actually become attractional to the world. God uses that for people to go, what? What is wrong with those people? What's wrong with that person? Why is that person always joyful? Everything in the world is going wrong, and that person's joyful. They're not out here, you know, boozing it up and drugging it up and, and sexing it up and all these things that we do. How can they stand it? How can they do it? They seem to actually enjoy what they do. Countercultural model, kingdom ethic on display. Right? Okay. A couple things just to finish up here. This is kind of an introduction. Um, I did a review of uh, Lloyd Jones's book last year, and I'm going to read some of it to you. It's not long. Just to give you a feel, if you want to get the book and read it, what you'll find as you read it, okay? Um, Lloyd Jones's book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, is a collection of expository sermons, okay? So these are sermons he preached. I don't know how long it took him to preach the Sermon on the Mount based on Romans, could have taken a decade. Who knows? <laughs> but it was a while. I can be assured of that. It is one of the most effective commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount available. The exposition is clear and allows the text to speak plainly. The application is abundant and powerful for Christian life. Lloyd-Jones states at the outset that the most distinguishing mark of the modern church is its superficiality. It's not a flattering assessment, but it provides an important foundation for the message of the sermon. Lloyd-Jones considers the sermon as a true pattern for Christian living. The person that lives according to the Sermon on the Mount gives evidence of being a genuine follower of Christ. 
Lloyd-Jones is not concerned about or focused on wrestling with academic disciplines. Instead, his objective is to have the sermon speak directly to the heart of a Christian. Lloyd-Jones employs a simple strategy in this book. The first two chapters provide an introduction and explanation of his approach to studying the sermon. The remaining chapters are the exposition of the sermon's text. Lloyd-Jones gives four reasons why studying the sermon is important. I just shared those with you. Lloyd-Jones divides the text into two primary sections, general and particular. The general section is Matthew 5, 3 through 16, and contains broad statements regarding the Christian life. It describes the character of the Christian, the world's unfavorable reaction to Christians of such character, and how Christians function in the world. The remaining portions make up particular section, uh, a particular section and offer more detail about the Christian life. In Matthew 5, 17 through 48, the Christian is encouraged to live in the spirit of the law and not by the letter of the law. Chapter 6 reminds believers that they live in the presence of God and that it is critical to grow in dependence on God. Chapter 7 describes the Christian living in light of God's unwavering justice. These passages make it clear that the life portrayed in the Sermon on the Mount is only possible through Christ. The strength of Lloyd-Jones' work is his exposition. He is a marvelous, incredible expositor of what's in the text. He knows how to unpack it. He knows how to understand it and rightly divide it. The detail in his teaching is extensive, but he remains true to his objective of having the text speak to the audience. He does not get mired in the minutia of scholarly disciplines. Lloyd-Jones pushes back against those who treat the Sermon on the Mount as a New Testament version of the Mosaic Law. The sermon is not a list of things to do or avoid doing in order to achieve God's approval. Instead, it is the description of those who are truly regenerate. It is a model for life in Christ, and it is evidence of those of the one who is in Christ. Lloyd-Jones calls the sermon a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called His new commandment. The Sermon on the Mount is the portrait of Christians who love the Lord with all their being and love one another as Christ has loved them. Lloyd-Jones' book is a deep and practical model for Christian discipleship. It is rich in content, but avoids being philosophical and theoretical. The book is suitable for a wide audience of Christians. A Christian that reads and studies the Sermon on the Mount with Lloyd-Jones will develop a keen perspective on what it means to be a follower of Christ and be reminded that living this way is impossible without Christ's presence and power. The Sermon on the Mount is what God is doing in the life of those who trust in Christ's finished work. Reading this book, that's pretty much it. Now, uh, a summary from uh, Douglas Webster on the Sermon on the Mount in the Secular Age from the article he wrote that uh, I just love this paragraph. I wish I had written it. <clears throat> he says, The Sermon on the Mount is the sum and substance of the Jesus way. The sermon lays out what it means to take up the easy yoke and learn from Him. Matthew eleven twenty nine. It is the definition of the great commandment to love, your to love our neighbor as ourselves. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. It is the content of the Great Commission to teach all that I have commanded, Matthew 28, 19, 20. The sermon incarnates the vision of the abundant life, John 10, 10. It embodies the essence of the renewed mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It envisions what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 1, and demonstrates the reality of the new self, Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. Jesus gave the sermon with Jeremiah's prophecy in mind. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33. To obey the words of Jesus is to bind ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 50, verse 5. 
One more statement he offers down here is the Sermon on the Mount is necessary for all believers because it brings clarity and understanding to what it means to follow Jesus. And yet, the enemy has succeeded for most of us in keeping us indifferent or unaware of it. You know, challenge you to go back to your questions that we talked about earlier. How much time have you spent? It takes about 15 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount in a, in a fairly moderate pace. So 15 minutes. You read it through one time, you're going to think it's a world turned upside down. If you read it a second time, it makes a lot more sense. And after that, the more you read it, the more you get out of it. A um, couple more things that he said that I think are worth, worth entertaining as we prepare to dive in. Uh, few believers grasp Jesus' complete and concise countercultural description of the Christian life in three chapters. G.K. Chesterton said, on the first reading of the Sermon on the Mount, oh, I just told you that. Amazing how the mind works. Huh? Um, okay, last one. Missionary statesman E. Stanley Jones boiled the options down to choosing between the cult of self-expression and the calling of Christ to self-denial. Read that statement again. Missionary statesman E. Stanley Jones boiled the options down to choosing between the cult of self-expression and the calling of Christ to self-denial. Jones wrote in 1931, There are just two great philosophies of life. Nietzsche uh, summed up the one way when he said, Assert yourself. Care for nothing except for yourself. Be strong. Be a superman. The world is yours if you can get it. Where have you heard that before? Probably on the TV, um, on the news. That's, that's pretty much the mantra of the present age, right? Here is the cult of self-expression, he says. It is ruthless in Nietzsche. It is refined in others. Jones explained the second option. Jesus stands as the utter opposite of that and says that the way to find life is to lose it. That the way of self-realization is by the way of self-renunciation. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him take, deny himself, literally, utterly reject, and take up their cross and follow me. No two ways could be more opposed. So, that sets the stage for our study. So, I would encourage you, you know, to just spend some time reading it. it doesn't take long. Read it through daily for the next week and see what you think about it when we come back together next Wednesday. Any questions before we depart? Questions? Comments other than Bob? I'll take yours offline. You know, one thing I noticed, uh, and I don't know if this makes any sense to anybody but me, but when I looked at... Are you saying we're all dumb? No. <laughs> the scripture here, it's all red in, in, in my Bible. And I went back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says that all scriptures breathed out by God. And here we have a distillation of the entire, in my mind, the entire scripture from the incarnate God. Mm. And I, I thought of that. The Logos. What? The Logos, yeah. speaking the word, yeah. is the word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's all I Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> if you raise your children to be countercultural, they will not be popular. Yeah. And they may not be successful uh, as the world deems success. That's, that's the hard thing that, that Christians are having the greatest difficulty in today's world. That we are, especially in the area we're living in, where achievement is such a, a huge idol. And, um, and yes, I did use the I word. Uh, it is an idol. So uh, as we, you know, live in this and breathe this culture that we're in, everything is pressing. Everything is pressing. I, I was talking to a mother this, this week, and she said, I cannot believe what kids in elementary school are being expected to do. And I said, why does it shock you? And she said, I don't know. It's just beyond their... It's just beyond their abilities. And I said, but that's the treadmill that we're on here in this area. You know, we, we've got them in college at 14 or 15 now, and we're trying to get them through college and into med school by the time they're 10. It, that's, that's the path we're on. And, and it's this competitive ambition that maybe it is parents living vicariously through their children, uh, or is it just a, a, a super inflated desire to have them succeed what drives it I don't know I, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that but uh, it's probably a mixture of a lot of things but that's the way that's the way it's turning right now and so it it puts immense pressure on parents we have we have families in our church that struggle with you know do I let my child participate in this activity which is a good activity you know whether it's some extracurricular thing or, you know, a band or playing ball or doing things that, you know, 40 years ago they could do and it didn't, it didn't cost them on the spiritual front. Today, it takes them out of the spiritual realm because everybody's intentionally scheduling things in competition to, you know, the spiritual gathering of the body. Uh, and you can't tell me it's not being done intentionally. It's, it's not coincidental. Um, and it's, it's developed a mindset. And so we have parents that have to make that choice. Do I let my child participate in this? Because it will be good for them. Will they suffer and be left behind? You know, because we don't allow them to do that. And I said, but you never go wrong putting God first. You never go wrong putting God first. When he says, and we're going to study that right here in this sermon. Seek first me and my kingdom. And all the other things that your heart desires will be added unto you. Now, it's hard to practically put that in motion, isn't it? When your kid is crying and wanting to be a part of something that's going on uh, that's going to interfere with your family worship with, with the body of Christ. Um, but the ones who do, that stand their, their ground, you know, God, God says you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. You have to decide if we're going to believe in faith in him or not, right? going to be a good journey. I'm excited that you're here. and look forward to pressing on next week. That's in Matthew, Bob. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Okay. I, always have to, I always have to have a guy I can pick on. You know, Bob's, Bob's usually a good candidate. Linda will get her share. Uh, she had to bring it up, didn't she? Just had to bring it up.
Just had to bring it up. Some people